Welcome to Watchmen Minute, where we're discussing the 2009 film by Zack Snyder, Watchmen, one minute at a time. I'm Eric Nash. My name is Travis Bowe from the Real Comic Heroes podcast. And I'm Connor Coulson from the Prometheus by Minute podcast. Hey, welcome, Connor. How you doing? Hi, I'm so glad to finally be on the show. I've been yeah. listening for a while. Long time listener, first time oh, caller. Thank you. <laughs> Dis- <Yep>. Discorder. <laughs> Ah, so it is uh, Monday for the new week, uh, week 30 here, uh, with our minute 146 that we have Connor on with us. And it starts with Adrian's scientist congratulating him and ends with Adrian toasting the pharaohs. I feel like it's been some time since we've uh, checked in with Adrian. It's the last time we saw him in the... uh in his like office with the uh, the other business business types and the assassination attempt in that wonderful purple double-breasted <laughs> jacket yeah he's just i don't want to use the word fabulous but he is fabulous <laughs> and that's something that i i really do think even though he's not a central character of Watchmen. He's really not in it much, both in the book and the film, but he he's such a mystery, and there's so much implied, a lot of subtext, a lot of room for interpretation. Uh, and I think, well, all the characters are, are wonderfully layered in this story, but to me, Adrian's always been the most fascinating because... He seems to come out of nowhere. You, you even know Rorschach's backstory very well, I'd say. Uh, you sort of understand comedians' motivations, but Adrian? He he seems to come out of nowhere. He's just this billionaire, or millionaire. I guess it's the 80s, so millionaire. Um, it's like how Bruce Wayne went from, <laughs> you know, millionaire playboy yeah. to billionaire playboy. Um <laughs> And we don't really know much about his uh, Adrian's personal life, his sexuality, which I find that the most intriguing, I think. Um, and that's, well, so I, as I've mentioned, I'm from the Prometheus by Minute podcast, and David the Android is a very similar character in that respect, that mm. there is something quite... Mm-hmm. There's a lot of queer subtext... Um, yeah. His motivations and psychology are so ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And I think what appeals to me about characters like that is that... Well, I've always loved aspirational characters. But then you can flip that. And these characters are so competent that it's scary. <laughs> that any whim or desire or world-saving plan they may have they have the power to bring into fruition. Hmm. That's a good point about the, uh, the backstory and how much time we get with uh, the other characters throughout the movie. And, and you're right. Aside from his big uh, walk and talk that he does, you know, of, of him just telling you what his 
kind of history was. Um, that, that's really all all you get. It's all from his own perspective. Right. It's a bit like the Joker, where the Joker yeah. says, "Oh, well, I had an abusive uh, father," or yeah. "Oh, my, this happened to my wife." Da da da. We we never have an objective reality there. Yeah, and even that uh, before Watchmen, the Ozymandias one. Love that artwork. I think the artist is Jay Jay Lee. Yeah. Um, and it plays out almost like. <sighs> sort of a dream kind of a fairy tale i don't think of it as the truth i think Mm. that's still adrian's idea of himself that he is this adventurer who you know a little bit of a t.e lawrence thing going on there too where he feels like he can come into this situation that he has no real qualifications to speak to speak of and change the world and fix everything. Yeah. It's this true arrogance. <laughs> it's a bit of self-awareness or perhaps just complete ignorance that he named himself <laughs> Ozymandias then. Mm. Yeah. I was going to say the before Watchmen uh, Ozymandias section just... It reminded me a lot of Batman Begins. Like It has a section where he gives everything up, travels the world, becomes a like works works on i think like on the docks and and gets into fights with you know yeah it's exactly like that yeah it just has a had a very batman begins feel to me a couple maybe a few other similarities yeah i'm wondering if that kind of trope traces back even further like um doc savage and characters Mm. like that those very early adventurers who you know with just you know their own determination and discipline they were able to travel the world and learn all these martial arts and all that sort of stuff which bit of a tangent um there's a video which i could probably link to of a guy who uh he's uh, german and chinese so he he at least had chinese heritage and he wanted to become, uh, well, he wanted to study Shaolin. Not, not just, like, not full-time becoming a Shaolin monk. It wasn't just about the Kung Fu. Um, but in order to do that, you know, you don't simply, I mean, maybe it's changed now. The Shaolin culture is much more uh, hidden off in a lot of these other um, monasteries that teach martial arts. But, yeah, I always find it funny in movies where this white guy, no connection to the culture, just rocks <laughs> up and like, yeah, I want to learn Kung Fu. Where in real life, this guy who already had some Chinese heritage, they had to pull so many strings and call this guy and that guy and then meet this guy by the statue and then they take this bus up into this really remote region. That's what it's like. Hmm. Crazy. <laughs> Um, so at the kind of going back a little bit to the beginning of this minute, it starts off with the, uh, just a voiceover and we see, um, kind of the Karnak facility fortress, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the voiceover from, uh, this like head scientist, I, I, he's listed as scientist and he might be head scientist in, uh, IMDB. Uh, portrayed by Manuj Sood, who was born in Kenya, but moved to Western Canada around 18 months. Um, oh, he was you know, still basically a infant. 
Um, is he a Canadian but, regular? I would. I'm gonna call him a Canadian semi regular because he was in. I'm stuff so glad like, I have one in my minutes. <laughs> um, he was in stuff like the Dead Zone and 4400, which were um, definitely. Oh, I haven't thought about that show in yeah. years. Um, he was in Supernatural, so that's kind of why I say he's a semi regular. Um, yeah. But he is the brother of Vina Sud, who is a Canadian regular. She was in uh, X-Files, Stargate, and Smallville, and as well as uh, Highlander, Battlestar Galactica, and then the X-Files from both the 90s and the 2016. So, well, that is pretty much most of that bingo card, right. I'm pretty yeah. sure. <laughs> I think I've been in Supernatural at this point. It's been going on for so long. <laughs> I am noticing on uh, the the uniforms that the v- Vite, I've been saying Vite my whole life. Oh, really? Because there is a hair removal company. Yeah, there's a hair removal company called Vite, which is V-E-E-T. Uh, so it's not Vite. Um, but yeah, the logo is slightly different here and they've put a triangle behind it. I'm wondering if that's maybe like the science division symbol. The that's what I think, there. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Sort of like in Star Trek, I think the it's a spiral that right. indicates you are in the science <laughs> no. division. Yeah. yeah. It's a very bold look. Uh, I, I guess, you know, it is supposed to be a... Well, no, they're not actually wearing lab coats, but it's maybe that's what they're trying to invoke, that they're celebrating um, their achievements. At the same time, this looks like a little bit more of a formal uniform, unless huh. the Vite company, e- even their lab coats are that fancy, because they're very structured. They look lined. Um, you know, there's padding in the shoulders. It's double-breasted. Like, this is not just a lab coat you throw on to play with some chemicals you know <laughs> yeah. i i mm-hmm. guess i wouldn't have noticed that I, I i thought they were just lab coats i never would have noticed the uh the structuring of of how they were made um this yeah i just thought the they were passing on <laughs> <laughs> but um that's that's good though you as a casual sort of well you're doing a movies by minute podcast but in that casual sense of it is evoking the right idea. These are scientists. Yeah. What are we going to put them in? White, because everyone's going to... It's a shorthand. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we shall talk of the costumes uh, a lot. But uh, Michael Wilkinson does the costumes here. Yeah. He also worked on Tron Legacy and Moulin Rouge and so many movies that I just... The costumes are... They, they take it to the next level. You know, technology-wise, like Man of Steel and yeah. Tron did things we hadn't seen before. Um, and I think he was perfect, a perfect choice for Watchmen because he perfectly encapsulated the whole genre. You, what, you look at that cast and they don't look like Avengers but there's he's evoking you know with silk specter there's a little bit of that, that sort of fetishy maybe a bit of a michelle pfeiffer catwoman look uh ozymandias obviously again sort of that same batman era michael schumacher schumacher <laughs> i'm not good with german words <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you can look at pretty much all of those characters and see 
kind of where he was drawing influence and and also that Rorschach costume is so spot on. It is so accurate. Yeah. They even did it looks like a purple wash or a bit of a purple dye to just capture that garish uh color scheme. Uh, the colorist <laughs> for Watchmen. He always says it's a garish one and I love that. <laughs> so I will always pronounce it that way. Nice. Now the white suits they reminded me of um a recent much more recent than this came out um preacher tv show that has the uh the uh, grail agents uh going back to the logo that they have on their uh lab coats or, or just uh jackets uniform um it, it the v itself sort of you know because all v's do this it kind of creates that triangle shape and then it has the what i would call the the science division part of it behind is another triangle but it points up so you almost have this star of david shape if you put the two triangles together which i don't think really connects to the character of of adrian but uh i actually made the connection that so the pink triangle right is the symbol that the nazis used to uh, uh mark homosexuals yeah and then in the graphic novel, the symbols used repeatedly. There's the pink triangle rally mm-hmm. um, that the the lesbian character, mm-hmm. you know, she she has that um, pasted on the side of the newsstand. Yep. And there's a there's a number of times that pink triangle and the white logo are used as sort of interchangeably, or in that fearf- fearful symmetry issue, they balance each other. I think oh, at sure. least once from memory. So yeah, I did a deep dive on this, but <laughs> I think again, well, I feel like either the screenwriter or Zack Snyder himself really wanted to emphasize that homosexual, at least asexual queer subtext of this character, um, which is much more subtle in the graphic novel, but then you do have the pink triangle, white logo uh, parallels over and over again. So we could perhaps infer that his queer identity was always part of the plan. Sure. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, Kind of going back to... um, I forget. I know they changed it a little bit between the book and the movie of which character Rorschach talks about, you know, possible homosexual, you know, must investigate further. Must admit. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I feel like here in that the is movie. Adrian, yeah. Yeah. It refers to Adrian, yeah, but sure. yeah. I think in the book, he says that about uh, Dan, <laughs> but I, I like the, I, I, I don't know. No, I yeah, no, it is Adrian because I've been making that joke okay. for like ten years. Oh, okay. Um it's one of my favorite lines because mm. it's just so like do you have a problem with it? Right. Or <laughs> are you interested? <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, to me I always see Adrian well, I guess maybe I'm projecting and I'm a bit biased because I've always wanted more especially male asexual representation and so adrian seems like the perfect one that he's so aloof he's mm-hmm. so 
intellectual that I just can't see. He probably might have had relationships, and in the Before Watchmen comic, he does. Uh, he's very casual about sex. It's almost sure. just this physical need that he he's had casual relationship with casual relationship with both men and women. Um, and then T. Lawrence was definitely asexual, um, and I've always sort of made that connection between Lawrence and Ozymandias. So uh, I'm kind of open to any interpretation, but yeah. well, there's always that debate of do we want queer characters as villains? Mm-hmm. And for me, I think to call Ozymandias just a villain is really well I, or none of these characters are heroes or villains it's really diminishing the complexity of these characters it's like um i didn't really appreciate comedian until i listened to this podcast and l- oh, wow. read the graphic novel again okay when i first read it i was about 15 and i just went oh he's so horrible he raped her oh what a monster so i just hated him for the rest of the comic but in in revisiting it and then becoming more mature and just, yeah, really trying to see from his perspective, I go, yes, he's a monster. He, he's done some things that are absolutely unforgivable. But there's this sadness to the comedian. There's this real tragedy of <laughs> what happened to you? Yeah. Yeah, and they never really touch on the comedian's upbringing. You don't meet him, you know any further back than the the watchman's or uh the, the minutemen's yeah, what is the early minutemen yeah yeah and then yeah taking into account the culture of the time and how yeah. things changed and i see comedian now as more of a survivor and then a, well, a survivor that turned incredibly cynical and bitter but i think if you were to talk to him he would see himself as just someone who's doing what he needs to get through life. Yeah. Uh, he's almost like an animal, um, <laughs> it's, it, especially in terms of his uh, sexual activities as well. as just, yeah, I don't admire yeah. this character. I don't respect this character, but in a way I understand him, hmm. which, you know, that's fiction. You should be able to go, like, you should be able to even watch something like Hannibal or read Hannibal and go, I'm kind of enjoying this guy. He's sure. bad. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. he's fun. <laughs> and that's, yeah, coming back to Adrian, another character where I go, yes, you're kind of making the queer, maybe, character a kind of villain, but I don't see this as a problem. I right. think that's actually pretty cool because he's this brilliant, physically perfect uh genius billionaire playboy philanthropist well and it's not using you know it's not using his orientation as a a reason or a flaw of Mm. his villainy you know the way like the old james bond movies like if someone had the villains always had a quirk or a physical uh, deformity to kind of symbolize that they're bad guys. Um, but here, his sexual orientation, it's not really a factor. I mean, it makes up, it, it informs his character, but it's not the reason that he's evil or the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. And 
in a way, <laughs> I think you guys have actually softened my uh, opinion of the movie version of Adrian. That mm. for the longest time, you know, I was like, the book is the basically the only version, and any deviation will not be tolerated. You know, it's very um, I don't know. Uh, Alan Moore, an extremist, yeah, an Alan Moore extremist, yes. Um, but I think what Snyder did with with Ozymandias in some ways it's different. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse when you compare the two characters. But um, yeah, sort of like the costume, sort of playing up this, <laughs> yeah homoerotic subtext and stuff and that he's just so yeah fabulous that the way he's dressed the sort of that he was they cast adrian good who is um adrian good um <laughs> matthew uh, uh matthew good yeah i'm looking at my notes i'm just <laughs> um yeah matthew good is very you know slight and androgynous and I, I dig that. You've kind of made him a bit more David Bowie yeah. instead of Captain America. Yeah. And so now you've got a cast of very diverse men. I mean, you're already in the comic, they were pretty diverse, but now you've got, you know, it, with the comedian, very, a very old fashioned, toxic masculine, very butch guy uh night owl is a more softer gentle intellectual uh rorschach is rorschach <laughs> and yeah then you've got this wonderful androgynous david bowie of of an ozymandias <laughs> and then john isn't really human anymore so i don't know if he counts but he sort of represents the ubermensch yeah absolutely i know it I've read some of the uh, philosophy of Watchmen and it has compared um, just some of the themes of Dr. Manhattan with some of the ideas of the, the Ubermensch and, and kind of all that. Yeah. I think there's at the end of one of the chapters in the graphic novel, there is, uh, Oh yeah. His lab partner, he, go, he writes a whole essay about, you know, yeah. that uh, the Superman is real and he's American and um, sort of reacting to the media at the time and all that, yeah. Uh, the one other uh, big uh, comparison, probably, probably before we move on from uh, this view, this roughly halfway through, I think, um, we're, we're viewing the, uh, the scientists. And uh, the comparison with uh, the book, though, is, is that uh, really there's only the three characters and all yeah. done of Asian-ish, maybe, um, descent. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. Yeah, in this picture, there's you know at least four times as many, and, and roughly a third of them maybe are more Caucasian-ish. Hmm. Yeah, and I only... I, I feel like I've only spotted one um, lady scientist. Yeah. She's like in the right side of the screen, kind of behind a few people. Um, yeah, uh, which it's it's the eighties, you know. Yeah, there are hardly any women in STEM. Um, but yeah, so this scene is sort of it's 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 compressed. Well, I guess it's a film. You have to condense and compress. So, uh, as most people probably know, this was the terrarium scene where he yeah. murders his uh, Vietnamese what? assistant. So it's not even the 
so everyone who worked on this project was on another island. Yeah. And it, it was... Then they were on a boat, and then... Yeah, so I, I can understand why they got rid of that. And I really like the efficiency of this scene. It gets straight to the point. Mm. It's... It's... Um, yeah. Very visually striking. Is it in this minute or no, the next one that? Well, I'll talk about that when it happens. But that's, what, that's um... where we find out what's taking place. <laughs> the the yeah. murder. Yeah. yeah. But I think it does. It does officially happen here. I think during this minute. Yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure. <laughs> it's a nice use of uh, half. Like half the minute is just the, that slow pan in on the scientists, and then. At a certain point, then you start to hear Adrian, and then it you know cuts back, cuts over to him, and it's a uh, just straight down the camera, you know, uh, look both times. <laughs> if a guy is giving you a speech about pharaohs and <laughs> and stuff like that, and he's we're all holding champagne glasses, <laughs> yeah, just hold off, just just wait, just a little bit, <laughs> see what happens to everyone else, yeah. Don't do it, guys. Have you never yeah. read a book or watched a movie? Yeah. I feel like um, after the scientists say cheers, there's a little bit of a laugh um, coming from Adrian off screen oh. before we see him. So it's a little, mm. little tiny bit of menace, I think. Um, Which, and then mm. the first thing he says is, what in life does not deserve celebrating? And uh, something... I think even your death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to hear almost the exact opposite statement from Dr. Manhattan later this week about life. So a little something to a uh, little oh. tease for a couple of days. Yeah. I've kind of got some symmetry in my minutes. Yeah. How <laughs> watchman, <laughs> but um, yeah, we didn't get the terrarium, the, yeah. that sort of uh, beautiful, I think that is such a cool idea for a set. Maybe it was actually a budgetary thing because that is a very complicated set. Sure. That you have this beautiful garden and then the wasteland of the Antarctic outside. I think there's there's a lot of symbolism there and it's just gorgeous. And oh, I will always think of that moment where one of the assistants, you know, he's, he's drunk the champagne and the butterfly just lands on yeah. his face and yeah. he doesn't even move. That's such a haunting image. Yeah, that would have been nice, I think, to have a little bit of that here. But, um, but I understand just... what the changes, obviously. Uh, yeah, so he does say what in life does yeah. not deserve celebrating. Um, oh, it's a vivarium. I'm sorry. Ah. I'm sorry, Adrian. Yes. Um, but... <laughs> So comparing these scenes, it's so obvious. And Dave Gibbons is really great at, well, just art in general. I'm so envious of his consistency. He's always yeah. just even tiny characters in the background. The anatomy is spot on. But he's good at subtle expressions, which being autistic, didn't realize that when I was 15. But having taught mm. myself over the years, yeah, I mean, just looking at the conflict and almost pain in Adrian's face as he talks about this, um, you know, that, he, well, what is he pained? What, what is the painful expression coming from? Is it because he's killing the assistants? Is it because he's talking about his past, uh, only relating to Alexander? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so what does he say here? Ruling without barbarism, at Alexandria he in he instituted the ancient world's greatest seat of learning. True people died, perhaps unnecessarily, though who can judge such things? Yet how nearly he approached his vision of a united world. So, yeah, that sounds a lot of weight there. Yeah. Where, whereas... In this scene, it really is the, the Bond villain moment of, I'm standing in front of this reactor, <laughs> I have champagne in my hand, I'm talking about how pharaohs had their servants buried with them, and I look fabulous. <laughs> um, so it is very much the, you know, rub your hands together. A, a little bit. Um, yeah. I feel it's, it's I, more... Where do we stand on this? See, I think it, it's not as much a villainous monologue because he's not saying he wants to rule the world. It, it's, it's, it, this gives Even you enough. Even though the song does play in one scene. I know. Yeah. I do like that. Um, <laughs> so um, cause this gives you just enough of his, like his character and his mania, but hmm. you understand that he believes like wholeheartedly that he needs to manipulate these things to save the world. Um, mm. and, and this is the same person, you know, we saw give the interview earlier and then talking to Dan afterwards and he, Adrian hasn't changed. Like nothing has happened to him that has changed his outlook or, or caused him to become this way since we first saw him in the movie. Um, he hasn't oh, gone you know through a, a big change. So he was being honest then and he's mm. being honest now, um, yeah, I actually, yeah, I never thought of that before. But yeah, he's probably one of the few characters who does not go through an yeah. arc. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's had to lie a little bit and pre- pre- pretend to to manipulate these plans to keep them on track. But at the end of the day, he, he believes what he's doing is, is right, you know. And so that's mm. why I see this as not as much a villainous monologue, like I said, because he's not doing it for power yeah i guess i don't get that sense of conflict that's in the graphic novel but then that's okay i think what we see here is a version of the character who is perhaps even more believe he believes or he's even more he's even more confident in his beliefs sure He's, he's absolutely assured and perhaps that's not such a bad thing that you have someone who is utterly unwaveringly convinced that this is the only way. Yeah. Which is even scarier if you think of it. <laughs> um, just a note on, on the coloring and all the, not the coloring, but the, um, what do you call it? The color grading. Yeah. Uh, yeah. forgetting words today. Uh, the crushed, color palette that Zack Snyder is so known for. I love it here. It's mm. looking really great. Um, and I think th- everything was designed accordingly. I find, you know, looking at the behind the scenes stuff, it's actually quite vibrant. Yeah. If you look at everything before they've done all the color filters and all that, the sets and the costumes are much brighter than you think they'd be. Sure. Oh, you can see that with Wonder Woman as well. So in Justice League... Uh, and and Wonder Woman versus Batman v Superman. Mm. Uh, it, it, it went from like this very dull burgundy to a very vibrant red. Oh sure, yeah. Um, and and speaking of color, I mean, I noticed the uh, the color. The, the, what's going on with this costume? And the fact that he is wearing the costume. Um, I think that they're saying <laughs> something yeah. that's being said there. 
But then also, I'd point out, I'm pretty sure that in the present timeline, <laughs> um, you know, in the current year uh, 85, um, for the story, this is the first time we're seeing him in the costume. Sure. Currently. During this yeah. past month-ish, yeah. whatever, what have you. Yeah. His relationship with that costume is quite interesting as well, because it was more of a... You know, the other characters really did um, sort of make a career of being a superhero, whereas maybe the approach is the opposite, where, you know, I want to be a superhero, so these are the costumes I have to make, or I've inherited this from my mother, or so on and so forth. Or, this, yeah, this, I guess Night Owl's also a legacy character, whereas Ozymandias always felt like a marketing project or product of yeah. people going okay well so you're probably going to want the gold and the purple because this ties into your um well this can tie into a company later on it's really good for <laughs> graphic design and and it's you know not being used right now that uh, like i can imagine that yeah. you know having the meeting with someone um it, i guess it doesn't feel authentic his costume it it's never uh it's not practical clearly sure no caps. <laughs> um, it is very much pomp and circumstance and a very much... Um, yeah, it is marketing. Because even, you know, having those references to ancient Egypt and Greece and antiquity, mm-hmm. it yeah. is... It's all image. There's no... It's, for, it's um, form over function. Yeah. And, and it... Yeah, I think that's exactly right, especially the cape. I mean, it it says that he can per- perform at you know this near or greater than Olympian level strength and agility, even while wearing a cape. Yeah, I kind of it says a lot that I'm I'm looking at the the lineup of characters even in the graphic novel that yeah he he looks much more show, showy. And it also seems like he's very competent. He's very, you know, because he's confident enough to wear a cape, but almost feels like he doesn't need to. Like, yeah, you could kick your ass, but he doesn't need to because he's the world's smartest man. So just from the top of my head, I'm going, oh, wow, there's actually even more going on in these costume designs than I initially assumed. Hmm. Uh, oh, did I? Ha- oh, the the accent. The accent I've not mentioned yet. But v- as a man with a hybrid accent myself, uh, I don't want to ha- sound like a hypocrite, but it sounds kind of weird. <laughs> I mean, it's it's admirable um, that a because he's, he's Irish. I think he's isn't he? No, no, he's he, English. Um, I'm thinking of. No, I, I think Matthew Good. I think I figured that Irish. out before. Yeah. Excuse me, Google. Can you tell me, Matthew? Good. Yeah, thanks. You you were listening to me through my mic, probably. Uh, English actor. Oh. Yes, I, but I keep confusing him with. Um... Oh God. Anyway, doesn't matter. <laughs> um, where exactly? Devon. So yeah, sort of not a very regionally specific accent. Mm. It's what most people would think of as a fairly generic one. So, um, yes, you've got an English actor doing a primarily American accent with hints of German. Yeah. Um, which, that 
takes a lot of control that he's able to <laughs> let because I noticed it's stronger in some scenes than others when he's giving more of a, a public speech for example it, he puts up the American totally a little higher yeah and then in scenes like this the German bleeds through or when he's talking to to Dan um, just in his office alone the German bleeds through again there so he definitely gave it a lot of thought. Um, but I'm just wondering if someone spent all their life or most of their adult years in America, you'd probably lose that accent. Um, but then I'm almost 27. Um, I was born in Britain. Um, I've got British relatives, but I've been in Australia my whole life. So why do I still sound English? <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. The, 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 um, I've looked into it over the years. I'm quite fascinated by accents and stuff. And apparently what it is, and I guess this might be something that Adrian and I share in common, is your social circle. So if you are socially reclusive, or perhaps in my case, autistic and nonverbal for a long time, mm. you aren't picking up the accent of your environment. So, yeah, in my own little headcanon, I like to imagine, yeah, Adrian didn't interact with the other kids very much and then went traveling the world. So he's got his strange accent that is purely his own as a result of his isolation. Hmm. I like that. Hmm. And, oh, thank you. I thought of it myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, everything about him is performance, you know, as we were mentioning the costume, but Perhaps the accent too, the American accent, is performance. Perhaps even, you know, the accent Dan or the, the other uh, Minutemen, um, or the Crime Busters, I should say, um, here isn't even his truest accent. Maybe he's even modifying it for his friends. Hmm. Could be, yeah. Yeah, I... I think we talked about this, but the I know um, in the uh, which book was it? It's the un, the Watching Time book. The yeah, the unauthorized Watchmen chronology by Rich Handley. I know he went through the timelines of everything and and lays everything out, and it was either in the. Um, Watchmen, like art, uh, role playing game or something, maybe in some of the character. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting that existed. Yeah, um, talked about his Adrian's father wanted to make sure that Adrian was born in the United States so that he could become president. So that was the when yeah. he, when, when his mother became pregnant, it was basically okay. We have to move to uh, the states right away, and because I want my son to be an American citizen. So, mm. so yeah, he still would have grown up in a in a predominantly German speaking or or heavily German accented family. Yeah, I I think that makes the most sense. That yeah, he he probably was just listening mostly or listening and talking to mostly his own family for the longest time. And this chronology, mm, I'm tempted. This this sort of uh, minutia, mm, yeah. I'm all about it. <laughs> well, you're on the right show. Yes. 
Um, getting a little bit back to the minute, I love that uh, Adrian says he's talking about the the culmination of a dream more than two thousand years old, and then he goes on a little bit and said, "And for this, I am ashamed, ashamed that you must must now share such an inadequate reward." And I love that he says that he's ashamed, and, and it kind of goes mm-hmm. back to the making this for me feel like it's not as much of a monologue. Yeah, it just has that little little bit of nuance, a little bit of spice. Yeah, and is it? I'm assuming it's a the, the dream that he's referring to, the, the two thousand year old dream. It's that goes back to Alexander the Great, I believe. Yes, probably and, not Jesus or the engineers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, does did Alexander the Great dream of uniting the world, or, or you know, I think he's always thought of more as as more of a conquerer or uniting through um, conquering well <laughs> yeah well yeah, yeah that's what i was about yeah. to say is for the longest time in human history there was no distinction between the two mm-hmm. uh, if yeah. i may put on a bit of a dan carlin for a moment yeah yes there was no distinction between <laughs> conquering and saving the world in in unity um but <laughs> yeah i mean you look at Alexander, Napoleon, the Mongols, Genghis Khan and and Kublai, their idea of unity was simply by bringing everyone under their rule because it's that paternalism. It's the assumption that you are an inferior culture and only I can bring you into modernity, unity, uh, intellectual superiority, whatever it is. Um, so that's another fascinating aspect of Adrian that he glorifies very antiquated notions of, of philosophy in general and morality in particular. Right on. (laughs) And that's the, uh, title of my next essay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, one last thing I had was, uh, Adrian says, you know, that this is the new Karnak and is that capital N new or like, like New York city or is it, yeah. uh, I know we've talked about the Karnak temple complex before. Um, it was kind of like a big, uh, series of, of chapels and temples and, and stuff, uh, kind of laid out around a courtyard, I believe in, uh. In uh, ancient Egypt, near uh, Luxor. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I like ancient Egypt as well. Sure. But this guy takes it to the <laughs> next level. Yeah. <sighs> Who names their cat Boobastus? Not... <laughs> Boobastus, don't piss on that. Boobastus, come here. You know. <laughs> but that so... uh, is more relevant in the next minute. <laughs> That's right. Um, I you have guys... exhausted my exhaustive notes. <laughs> right on, Eric. Uh, got anything else for this one? Um, well, uh, something I will I will uh, uh, put up myself in our group uh, is a uh, a pretty cool uh, what they call a fly around or a, you know a, a walk through kind of thing, but in the air, flying like a drone almost. Uh, oh, compu- okay, yeah, computer yeah. generated of Karnak. And temple oh, area and so forth. Sweet. That looks that reminded me a whole lot of uh, of the of the map room in Raiders. 
Oh, nice. Um, cool. But yeah, then, yeah. But then you know, uh, you know, you brought up uh, arrogance, and I, I was in my notes. I put down ego, and and uh, I just had to I had to make the note of it was hard to fathom when I first read and watched just what that was like. But it's easy, pretty easy now. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I, I also noted uh, him saying he was ashamed. That was pretty yeah. surprising. In going through it minutely. Right on. I'll, actually, I'll, I'll talk about the next one because we have been going for a while. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we wrap up with uh, Connor? Why don't you tell our listeners all about uh, what you do? So I host the Prometheus by Minute podcast. Uh, you can find that where all good and actually also bad podcasts are found because <laughs> there's no discrimination. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I can also be found on traviandesigns.com, T-R-A-V-I-A-N. That's where the podcast goes and uh, my art projects and what have you. Uh, also, if you're into cooking and nutrition, maybe, uh, I have just started a blog uh, keto mad keto uh, k e t k e t o m a d. It's all one word. Uh, dot net. Uh, where I'm making recipes for the ketogenic diet and uh, talking about fasting and all the benefits there. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with that. So wow. yeah, come check that out. Very cool. All right, I think that's uh, probably going to do it for today. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me on. This has been yeah, fun, thank you very much. and uh, I've finally found people who will listen to all my deep thoughts about <laughs> Ozymandias. <laughs> yep, they're always welcome here. Hurrah! All right, so you will you'll be able to join us tomorrow, Connor. Is that that's right? Hell yeah! All right, so that'll be minute one forty-seven tomorrow. This was one forty-six, and until then, who watches the Watchmen? We do. We do. We do. Watchmen are over. Over.